So I'm all alone again this week, dear listener. Rusana will be back in next week's episode. This week's episode is part of the fall series at the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh on the long Soviet 1970s. This is an interview I did for the third event, which is entitled The Cold War from the Margins. And I interviewed Theodora Dragostinova about the Bulgarian cultural diplomacy. And it's not just in the socialist bloc, but also to the Western world and the developing world, particularly to India and Africa. You'll certainly hear a lot more about that in the interview. If you haven't heard the first two events, the first was on African students to the USSR and the second on Cuban-Soviet scientific exchanges, I highly encourage you to do so. That will help you understand the kind of logic I'm, I'm putting together for this series. And you'll, you'll be able to have a better context for my comments after uh, this interview with Theodora. For those of you who haven't heard the first two events, um, let me give some context on this series for the Soviet 1970s. Well, the first um, reason for it is that the 1970s has become a, a really burgeoning new area of research, both in the Soviet Union, but also in the research on state socialism in Eastern Europe. And a lot of this research is really pushing back against the idea that the state socialist system was a stagnant, isolated, and disconnected uh, society from not only the Western world, but the, the world at large. And this series is also a way for us to try to think about what kind of experiences that people had in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and really to point out that, as many as Theodora points out in this interview, um, the 1970s was really the high point or the peak of the state socialist system. And I think it's worth thinking about, like, what, does, what exactly did that mean for the people who lived through it? I'll give some more impressions and takeaways after the interview. Uh, I don't want to delay too much longer. So hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like what you hear on this podcast, I highly encourage you to support us. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So my guest this week is Theodora Dragostinova. She's an associate professor of history at Ohio State University, and her work focuses on nationalism, migration, global history, and Cold War culture. She's the author of Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Immigration Among the Greeks in Bulgaria from 1900 to 1949, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2011. She's also the co-editor of Beyond Mosque, Church and State, Alternative Narratives of the Nation in the Balkans, which was published by Central European University Press in 2016. She also edited a thematic cluster for the Slavic Review in 2018, titled, a very relevant title to our discussion today, Beyond the Iron Curtain, Eastern Europe and the Global Cold War. 
And her most recent book, which we'll talk about, is The Cold War from the Margins, A Small Socialist State on the Global Cultural Scene, which was published this year by Cornell University Press. So here's Theodora Dragostinova. When I first opened your book, and I always find it's interesting the way people open books, um, and the preface for your book, Cold War from the Margins, begins with the sentence, I grew up as a child of developed socialism in Bulgaria. What is your, why did you start like that? And what is your personal connection to this story? Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and talk about the 70s, which are now the new 60s, the way I see it. So, you know, uh, Sean, I think that I probably should have been an anthropologist on, on one level. Uh, I really like to put myself uh, in the shoes of my historical, you know, subjects that I'm writing about. And uh, in fact, uh, when I do research, I often wonder about how the larger historical forces that I study have shaped me as an individual and my friends and, you know, my family, my 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 social circle, my, you know, my society as a whole. So um, I always knew I wanted to buy a, to, to write this book uh, because I wanted to ultimately write a book about my childhood. And it's true that the long 1970s, I was born in the early 1970s and the long 1970s at the time of my childhood, the time of developed socialism or late socialism, as, as we call it, you know, in scholarly analysis. Uh, and many of the events that I'm describing in this book, especially those that happened domestically in Bulgaria, I actually remember uh, because they had an imprint on me as a child uh, and shaped me who I became as an individual. And just to throw in one more caveat here is that also because my book is about global connections as well, um, when I was a child, my parents uh, went uh, to Nigeria where they worked as uh, specialists for two years. Um, and when I was choosing case studies for my book, I knew that one of my case studies is going to be Nigeria because I wanted to know more about the country where I had spent, you know, over a, a year of my childhood. And, and what do your parents think about the fact that you decided to write one of the chapters of your book is dedicated to Nigeria and they're the inspiration for it, right? They really are the inspiration. But, you know, the book that I, I wrote, I ended up writing, it's more about elites and policies rather than the experiences of ordinary citizens of socialist Bulgaria. Uh, so I, I'm hoping at some, time, at some time in the future to be able to return to this question, what was the bottom-up experience of, you know, the 70s, 80s, late socialism in general. Uh, but um, I actually, in the end, decided to leave out of my book these materials that are uh, more connected to the question of the experiences of ordinary Bulgarians. But they didn't have the reaction to the fact that you are you wrote about this. Did they? Did they have anything to say about it? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I am always in conversation, you know, with my parents. So there is a sizable, actually, family archive related to this experience uh, in Nigeria that I want to write about at uh, some point. Uh, so, uh, you know, my parents uh, were very happy to know that I'm including this experience. In fact, when I was doing my research in the archives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I came 
across a very routine document from the embassy in Lagos talking about my parents. Oh, wow. Nothing, nothing <laughs> exciting. No, no sure. revelations there, right? It was just sort of like this very, very typical, uh, you know, dispatch. Expect so-and-so. But that was exciting. Uh, so they were excited about that. But the book is about so much more than just Nigeria. So it never, you know, turns to be like a personal story from that point of view. Absolutely. Well, let's get into some of those larger issues. So why don't you give us some uh, context for Bulgarian cultural diplomacy in this period? What were some of the domestic and international considerations that went into these policies? So, uh, so, so the subject of this book is what I call the Bulgarian cultural extravaganza of the late 1970s, early 1980s, when Bulgaria truly embraced cultural internationalism and organized by official records, upward of 38,000 cultural events, right? Uh, in, a, in a period of, of five years. Now, with all the disclaimers that these are figures you know, provided by the Sociological Institute of the Bulgarian Communist Party for clearly propaganda purposes, but what matters here is the geography, that the Bulgarians went all around the world, not just in the usual suspects, uh, sort of like, you know, the Soviet bloc, but in the Balkans, in Western Europe, um, in... Uh, well, in every single continent but Antarctica, right? So, uh, there were Bulgarian cultural representatives. And if we think about uh, the context, there's clearly the domestic and there's the international, uh, and I can try to tease it out uh, quickly. Well, the late 1970s were sort of the mature years of the regime of Todor Zhivkov. Uh, so Todor Zhivkov, the Bulgarian communist dictator, was in control. Uh, he did not uh, face the sorts of challenges uh, his peers in places such as Czechoslovakia or Hungary or Poland faced in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The political regime in Bulgaria was secure. Uh, Bulgaria was relatively economically stable during this time period. There was very little unrest domestically. So in the absence of domestic problems, the regime could orchestrate this very extravagant, extravagant you know, foreign cultural extravaganza. Hmm. And what was, the, what was the international goal? The fact that they went not just to, to your usual suspects of the Soviet bloc, but all around the world, the developed world, the Western world, what did they want to try to get out of all of this? That's a great question. And I want to emphasize that, first of all, the Bulgarian experience is not unique. We are now learning more and more about other socialist states, small, of the smaller socialist states outside of the Soviet Union, having this sort of outreach to, to, the, to the world, right, uh, to the global south as well. But what's unique about Bulgaria is that Bulgaria was a little bit of a latecomer, right? Whereas the rest of the Eastern European countries really did this in the 60s. Bulgaria mainly opened to the world in the 1970s. And because of that, I think there was more of an urgency to establish these contacts faster and to have more far-reaching contacts uh, because there was already, you know, competition out there in the world. So the Bulgarians wanted to catch up. But the basic purpose of these contacts was two. One, reputational, a matter of prestige. Uh, Bulgaria wanted to correct the view of being the most loyal Soviet ally, uh, of being the master satellite. 
uh, and it demonstrated independence through cultural policy, right? Uh, you know, going out there talking about, you know, the Bulgarian heritage, Bulgarian uniqueness and so forth. But the second reason uh, was really that culture was in many ways the first step in this opening, which then also entailed economic and political cooperation. So in many of these cases, culture truly became sort of like the trailblazer, right? Uh, in opening additional contacts, uh, many of them economic, because the Bulgarians, as the rest of Eastern Europe, were pursuing hard currency, uh, but also recruiting new allies, uh, as that happened, for example, in India and Mexico. It's also really interesting that this opening is occurring amongst a major anniversary for Bulgaria, and that's the 1300th anniversary of, of the state of Bulgaria or Bulgaria's existence. Um, so there is an interesting mix of kind of nationalist pride, nationalist display, but also this internationalist outreach. How, how did these two work together and what were some of the, the fallout of it? It's such a great paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, this is a national, now nationalist campaign. Uh, the way our official discourse had it described is patriotic, right? A patriotic campaign. But on the other hand, it has a global reach and global aspirations, right? And I think this really has to do with what we're learning more and more about the nature of nationalism in socialist societies, right? I mean, nationalism by now we know uh, was an intrinsic part of the socialist experiment, a state socialist experiment. Uh, it also was used, uh, uh, you know, by the regimes uh, to consolidate their power. And this was very much the case in Bulgaria. What was happening in Bulgaria was an expression of this turn towards patriotism, right? And patriotism evolved many things. It evolved, you know, this cultural aspect, which has to do with the building of monuments, with the making of movies, with the publication of various books, celebrations, and so forth. But that cultural nationalism also had a more, shall I call it, macabre substream because that also meant excluding the minorities from this cultural discourse. And that became a nationalist discourse about Bulgaria and the Bulgarians, right? Not the Muslims, not the Turks, not the Polacks, who were part of the Bulgarian nation, but they were not, according to this. I'm curious, you know, this anniversary, it, it's, it's basically combining, or at least uh, it, I would imagine creating a narrative that stretches throughout this 1300 period. So you have these, you know, early modern, modern, and then the socialist, uh, a socialist system, kind of part of a, a, a general narrative of continuum. And then, as you just pointed out, the exclusion of of minorities. So, what is the story they're telling of Bulgaria with this 1300 span of history and the celebrations around it? I mean, it, it really is. Uh what you just described, a story of historical continuity from antiquity up until today, from the Thracians, from Thracian civilization, which predated the Greek and Roman uh, civilization. Of <laughs> <laughs> right? So Bulgaria is one of the oldest states in Europe, one of the important forgotten civilizations. It also predated, you know, uh, uh, Kiev, uh, and, and uh, you know, Russia uh, as a Slavic civilization, right? Uh, so, I mean, you, you very clearly see these civilizational aspirations. 
And it goes to the 13th centuries. It brings the Bulgarians together in unity and, you know, perpetual strife for progress. And where does this progress lead? 1981, which also conveniently happened to be the year of the 90th anniversary of the Bulgarian Communist Party's establishment. <laughs> so right, the progress of history for 13th century, going from antiquity and the bright future of communism is just on the horizon. And and how did, you know, here in, in Southeastern Europe, in the Balkans, uh, where you have a history of national tensions, both within states, but also with neighbors. How did this uh, celebration of nationalism work in regard to, say, you know, the Greeks and the Romanians and other neighbors of Bulgaria? Not very well. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yes, nationalism was really not a good strategy. So, so let me just say that, first of all, the Bulgarians uh, were aware um, that they needed to tone down their nationalistic uh, message. They also needed to tone down their ideological message. They didn't want to sound uh, as what they called communist propaganda, right? Because they knew that that is not going to really be received well, especially in the West. They didn't also want to look like crazy nationalists. Um, and honestly, uh, it's just so, again, interesting to see how they were constantly comparing themselves to their neighbors. And this is the time of Ceausescu's regime uh, embracing nationalism as well. Uh, so the Bulgarians didn't want to be put in the same category as you know, Ceausescu. Uh, so they very deliberately tried to tone down nationalism. But while they could possibly fool the West and the developing world, they couldn't fool their neighbors, right? <laughs> so uh, in particularly, Romania and Yugoslavia reacted very harshly um, in, this, uh, in this regard. And particularly Yugoslavia uh, uh, because of the Macedonian issue. Um, this was the time when Bulgaria was asserting, uh, again, the fact that actually very vocally denying you know, uh, Macedonian identity, um, uh, denying the existence of Macedonian language, and, uh, you know, having this impact of the patriotic campaign also had to do with claiming the history of ancient Macedonia and Ottoman Macedonia as Bulgarian history, right? So uh, what, what about the what about the Turkish issue? What about the Turks? So that was really strange to me when I started researching it. I actually expected more tensions there, uh, but at that particular moment, the Bulgarians and the Turks uh, were able to to moderate their disagreements, uh, and that was not such big an issue at all. Um, by contrast to the period from the mid nineteen eighties on when you're going to have a fallout in the relations between Turkey and Bulgaria because of the Bulgarian pressures vis-a-vis -vis the Turkish minority in Bulgaria. At this particular moment, the Bulgarians were basically threading very gently. Uh, uh, and uh, they didn't, I mean, they, because the whole thing was reputational, right? So they didn't want to create big problems with their neighbors. And of course, the most spectacular achievement here was what they managed to do with the Greeks. Uh, in my first book, I, I studied, uh, uh, you know, the relationship between Bulgaria and Greece, and there's a long history there. 
of national, national nationalist confrontations. But by using cultural diplomacy, the Bulgarians were very skillfully able to actually use culture as a first step towards regional cooperation. Because in this particular moment, the Greeks were also looking to advance, you know, regional cooperation that was their agenda as well. Well, it's it's really interesting because here you have a, a they're they're doing this dance right between the internationalism and the nationalism within culture. You have this huge nationalist celebration around the thirteen hundredth anniversary. Um, what other cultural um, products and diplomacy did they engage in with their neighbors, but also beyond there? What types of programming or celebrations, etc.? So I want to emphasize that my book is about what I call official culture, or what we might call tentatively high culture. Sort of like the culture orchestrated by cultural elites and cultural bureaucrats uh, on behalf of the Bulgarian state and for the purposes of advancing the image of the Bulgarian state. So I'm looking at what the Bulgarians call prestigious exhibitions. Right? I mean, these like, you know, Thracian treasures uh, or orthodox icons uh, or, you know, medieval archaeology, you know, th these beautiful historical exhibitions that were also packaged with, you know, propaganda brochures about um, the um, advantages of real socialism. Uh, and then you have concerts, you know, folk concerts, classical concerts. Uh, I mean, you have film, screaming, uh, film screenings, book readings, meetings with friendly audiences, you know, a lot of monuments, a lot of monuments actually built uh, throughout the world. Various, uh, you know, clubs for friendship with various, you know, groups. Um, and then... Cultural exchange in the classic sense of also exchanging people. Uh, I mean, bringing students over to Bulgaria from developing world, uh, but also Bulgarian specialists traveling to various parts in the world to bring this message of Bulgarian culture to the rest of the world. Now, one of the one of the, another interesting thing I one other thing I found really interesting is this cultural diplomacy also involved outreach to Bulgarian exiles. Uh, both in Europe and in the United States. And of course, these exiles are not necessarily, you know, supporters of the state socialist regime. Um, and, and this goes to actually a question that somebody just posed in terms of how this was viewed from, say, the United States, if you can touch on that. But but through the eyes of at least exiles, how did they, um, you know, interact and participate, but also view the, this, these cultural performances and diplomacy? So, so I think I'm going to take those questions one by one because they, they, there's certain nuance here. So as far as, as the emigres, right, in Bulgaria uh, or the Bulgarian emigres uh, in the West, this is what I looked at. Um, that was a key audience for the Bulgarian endeavors because if you think about it, you know, small Bulgaria is organizing a cultural event in the United States. Who is going to show up? Right. I mean, so you have to have some interest in this. Right. So, for example, when you have one of these prestigious exhibitions at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as the Bulgarians did, that was a huge success because, you know, people go to the Metropolitan and also see the Bulgarian exhibition there. But obviously not. That's why the focus on these prestigious exhibitions, because you get the audience. Obviously, not all Bulgarian events were of that scale. Uh, so then you have to put an audience together. And who is the audience? Well, people of Bulgarian heritage. 
So the Bulgarians very systematically reached out to this. What I did, they wanted is to reach out to the second generation of Bulgarians because they viewed these people as politically safe, as people who nurtured patriotism, right? And they tried studiously to avoid recent um, exiles, right, um, who had fled the communist regime. Because obviously those people would show up and say, no, 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 this is just communist propaganda. And in, the, in, the, the, in, in this whole experience, there were awkward, uh, appear, you know, sort of like, you know, confrontations. Uh, but um, what I find most interesting is that ultimately the Bulgarians again decided that patriotism is the way to go about it because patriotism is also going to be, uh, bring the diaspora together regardless of political divisions. And they very, very systematically nurtured this nationalist sentiment and again successfully. So I think that sort of like the dark picture here is, is as much as we don't want to to admit it, I mean, nationalism works. I mean, nationalism works to bring people together regardless of their political disagreements. Yeah. And it sounds like too, with with both the, the again, I'm going back to the narrative coming out of the anniversary, but also this, especially targeting second generation is, is I would imagine one of the major goals is to normalize the Bulgarian communist regime, right? As just part of a natural trajectory of Bulgarian history, but also a normal state that recognizes the importance of Bulgarian-ness. Exactly. I mean, building a Bulgarian diaspora and actually what the Bulgarians were modeling their behavior after is the Polish states, uh, you know, extensive outreach to Polish communities. So they were stu- studying, uh, you know, the, the activities of Polonia, the, the Polish organization in charge of sort of like, you know, Polish people abroad. Uh, and they were replicating some of this, uh, these uh, policies. Now, Oh, go ahead. Do you want to add something? Well, I actually wanted to address Mark Steinberg's question, which I'm seeing here in the chat, because I think this is uh, what you were probably, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, referring to. I mean, uh, what was the general perception of America and Americans by the Bulgarian public? Uh, So that is also very interesting. Uh, So uh, if you look again at the official level uh, of, you know, the official discourses, you have this very strong ideological undercurrent as the United States is being an imperialist uh, power that is undermining, uh, uh, you know, world peace and security uh, and so forth. So that is very much present there. But when the Bulgarians actually started uh, preparing for their celebrations, they also studied the American experience in the U.S. Uh, bicentennial in the 1977. And they, yes, and they sent actually specialists to the United States to study how the Americans had celebrated their own anniversary and actually borrowed some elements uh, 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 and, um, you know, sort of like learned from the American experience. But in general, while coming in the United States, um, the Bulgarians were very selective who their conversation partners would be. So they were really looking to connect to academics, right? So they went to my home institution, Ohio State. They actually went to Pittsburgh. So they would go to, to well, the tambourines. 
uh, of Duquesne University, right? I mean, this like premier folklore troupe. Um, I mean, they were connected to the people there because they were actually uh, the people. I mean, I might be to see here. Uh, even um, at Pitt, they tried to sponsor in the nationalities rooms. They tried to sponsor a Bulgarian nationality room. Uh, but they felt they were not uh, able to, but they were talking to people at Pitt about that possibility, right? So they very carefully tried to curate their cultural relationships with people that they deemed would be responsive to their own agendas. And actually, if we look at the list of people who uh, who um, helped Bulgaria, for example, I mean, they frequently spoke to Senator Fulbright uh, because, I mean, this is the people you're going to, to speak to. Uh, but also to some of the premier scholars of Eastern Europe during this time period. Uh, I mean, they had a symposium at Ohio State and they tried to establish a chair in Bulgarian studies at Ohio State, which again, they failed, but I uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you'd be sitting on that chair right now, probably. Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> it was in the Slavic department, so probably not. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so, you know, this is in, in terms of the their, their regional, but also Western uh, cultural diplomacy. They also, of course, as you point out, they're involved in in the developing world. You know, India, they have ties in Mexico, but also in the African continent. So uh, talk about those. How, how, what, what were those about? Were they of the same kind of mission or did they have a different purpose than, say, the other, other cultural diplomacy? So I want to separate the three cases into two categories. So, for example, with India and Mexico, there you have the most intense cultural diplomacy actually carried out by Bulgarian elites, which was directly connected to the desires of socialist elites, uh, but also specifically the daughter of the Bulgarian dictator, Ludmila Zhivkova, the first lady or first daughter <laughs> of Bulgaria, uh, who became, uh, you know, Minister of Culture uh, in her late 30s in 1975. So right, you know, uh, on the eve of these celebrations, and who very systematically pursued contacts with India, Mexico, and actually Japan, which I chose to leave out of the book because it just was becoming too big. Uh, because she honestly had personal interests uh, in pursuing contacts with these countries. She um, was interested in theosophy, mysticism, yoga, you know, Eastern philosophies, vegetarianism. She was traveling to these places, visiting cultural sites, but also having private meetings with sages and gurus. Uh, and, you know, uh, I mean... Uh, Right. So here you see how state policy becomes the projection of the personal interest of communist elites. And here really you see, I mean, how an authoritarian state works. The first daughter made this a priority and it became translated into state policy. So that tells you a lot about how culture functioned in late socialism. This is not the bottom up. Uh, decision to go to India, right? Now, there are ties there, right? There are some commonalities, there is interest, but this is systematically built by communist elites. So that's one part of, uh, of you know, what's happening. But the other part is more connected to the Nigerian case, where I think that the Nigerian case is more characteristic 
a broader trend of why Bulgaria went to the developing world to begin with. And that had to do mostly with economic considerations in the context of the 1970s. Uh, because Bulgaria, uh, excuse me, Nigeria, an oil-rich country, uh, a country that's emerging from a civil war in the 1970s that needs help rebuilding and that is willing to reach out outside of its traditional partners in the West and Great Britain because it wants to also project independence. And the country that had a relationship with the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union also supplied weapons during the Civil War, with Bulgarian help, by the way, and we still don't know enough about that because all those documents I was actually unable to even look at. Um, and then actually the Soviets built this huge plant in Nigeria, um, which was a cement plant, which was a disappointment because the technology was outdated. The Soviets were overreaching in their control. They didn't want to train the Nigerians properly. And in this context, Nigeria turned to the smaller Eastern European states as an alternative to the Soviets. I, I was struck by the the, the personal interest of, uh, is it Ludmila? Ludmila, yeah. Jikova, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jikova, her interest in Eastern uh, philosophy and practices because you know, she's part of a, a global trend here in the nineteen early nineteen late mid nineteen seventies, but so that kind of speaks to an aspect of globalization that is is really getting underway. That at least in our our kind of um, thinking about globalization as a category, and most of our discussions are based on a capitalist driven globalization. To what extent did this? You know the Bulgarian story, but we have other stories that are emerging from from Eastern European states and, and the Soviet Union, and and positing a socialist form of globalization. Uh, how much was this a potential alternative, and what was that alternative? So I'd like to think about the alternatives, uh, and I am still not totally convinced that I want to call this socialist globalization. So. I think that there are good convincing reasons to call it that. But I even am not sure why we need the term globalization here. So, it, it, I mean, and I use it in my work because I want to connect to these discourses and I mean to this analysis. And I think it's important to think that there is a bigger picture there. But honestly, I mean, is it socialist globalization or is it just alternative, you know, global connections? Uh, outside of East-West and North-South lines that would privilege the West. I think it is very important for us to really challenge this view that globalization is all, all, only Westernization and only, you know, capitalist globalization. Absolutely. Um, but, I mean, I don't know that we necessarily need the term socialist globalization here, because I don't even know that that is globalization in the same sense that we understand globalization today. So I definitely am in favor of talking about the importance of this alternative um, context. I talk about alternative global imaginaries. Uh, and honestly, to me, this is a preferred term to socialist globalization because I think it's more malleable and it allows for more things to happen 
within, you know, these alternative contacts that are very much the case in the 1970s. And Sean, if I could just like emphasize here, because your entire series is on the Soviet world in the 1970s. I think that one of the characteristics of the Soviet world or second world, that would be my preference for a term, right, uh, is that we do have these alternative global imaginaries and alternative forms of global interconnectivity, uh, which, yes, they became forgotten after the end of the Cold War, but they also became deliberately erased by the Eastern Europeans themselves who were in, in a search to join the West. So, so what, what, what are the, some of the alternative aspects of, of this type of global imaginary that makes it distinct or different from what we usually talk about in terms of globalization? So to me, it's important for us to remember that there were vibrant political, economic, military, cultural, and other relations between East and South. And those were very rich connections. Uh, now, they often functioned as, you know, forms of what we might call socialist globalization because they followed these templates of socialist modernization, state-led development, right? Uh, for example, that was one of the characteristics, state-led development. But there were also a lot of idiosyncrasies here because what the Bulgarian case shows is that since, for example, Bulgaria established contacts with India, mainly because Ludmila Zivkova became friends with Indira Gandhi, and those two had a personal interest in fostering these relationships. Those, those relationships were not necessarily socialist relationships. That's why I'm shying away from the term socialist globalization. They were not. They were eccentric relationships, right? I mean, they were relationships that were based, in this case particularly, on this extreme, extravagant even, civilizational claims. Uh, and they're not all positive relationships either. Again, these are two authoritarian states led by elites who do whatever they please for their own personal interests. So I also think that sometimes we tend to emphasize the positivity, the positive aspects of socialist globalization, right? I mean, uh, and, and there are some of those, but we do need to remember that this sort of alternative global interconnectivity came out of authoritarian states that limit this contact significantly. Now, also, too, I mean, I could also see a, a good argument for moving away from, say, a socialist globalization because it that just also reproduces the binary that these relationships are trying to break. <laughs> Nevertheless, you do have this occurring during the Cold War. Um, and and one of the, the, the interesting things is that looking at the Cold War from a small state like Bulgaria, so – how did the Cold War look from Bulgaria's perspective? So this is a very tricky question to answer. Because for me to answer this question, I should have, and I hopefully have, an audience that cares to hear voices from the margins. Right? So up until 
very recently, the big important stories have been from the center. And we now want to pretend to, to, to imagine that we also want to empower other voices out there. But we actually need to be able to say, well, okay, so does it really matter how the Bulgarians view the Cold War? And if we say it matters, then I can tell you what the Cold War <laughs> looks like <laughs> from the viewpoint uh, of Bulgaria. So uh, what it looks like is, but specifically to the 1970s, that it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all stagnation. It is not all crisis. There is a measured optimism. Uh, and that measured optimism also has to do with the recognition that the small state could actively and successfully maneuver between the superpowers and achieve a degree of autonomy and independence. Now, people are going to say, but that really doesn't matter. What matters is military, political, economic stuff. Well, so then we need to also ask ourselves, is this really what matters for everyday people? Or is it what they see in their everyday life in terms of these like cultural events that are omnipresent and that shape their way of thinking, right? Because ordinary people are not part of these decisions connected to military economy and, you know, uh, and politics, but they have been left with the impression that they're part of the national slash cultural project. So then breeds a little bit of optimism in what is often portrayed as a gloomy decade. And then finally, from the perspective of Bulgaria, what that shows is that in the late 1970s, for Bulgaria, socialism was actually, this was the golden age of socialism, really. The golden age of the Zivkov regime, Bulgaria was not in, the state, in a state of crisis necessarily. And then if we take cumulatively, we might actually put it back into the global framework and ask, well, why does this matter globally? Well, maybe it matters because some states in the 1970s, some of the smaller states in the 1970s, had a different experience from the big actors and big countries who were experiencing various crises. And maybe the 1970s it really looks different from the margins if we care to actually look at the margins. And I think it's important too, to as a way to um, re-narrativize the late twentieth century, right? You know, you know, just to take a, a common theme, it's if you narrativize it only, you know, around the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union and communism, capitalism, and all these things, the narrative then becomes, well, you know, how does say a state like Bulgaria end up? the communist regime collapsing, right? And that's the narrative that we tell and, and, and we're only kind of caught in that narrative. But, you know, by looking at it at the margins, we see that, well, you know, there's different experiences going on and maybe that, that um, teleological narrative that we give uh, is, is misleading. You know, up until today, when I teach late socialism, you know, is that talking about the Pope? Uh, and solidarity, you know, I, I, I am still tempted to say this is the beginning of the end of the socialist regimes in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, but at the same time, solidarity is happening in Poland. The 1300th anniversary is happening in Bulgaria. And the Bulgarian regime is as secure as ever. 
And in fact, in Western coverage of what's happening in Bulgaria during this exact time, Bulgaria, the economist in one article called Bulgaria the un-Polish Bulgaria. So that again gives you another alternative view interpretation of late socialism. Again, this not, as you said, not the beginning of collapse of socialism. In fact, some of these regimes were as stable as ever. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from the audience. What was the dynamic of cult cultural exchanges between the West and Bulgaria and within the socialist camp countries? So it's interesting. Within the socialist camp, I did. I even chose not to do a separate chapter on that because that was not the priority for Bulgaria. Bulgaria had a very robust, you know, cultural relations according to the rules of socialist internationalism with all of these socialist states. But that was not the priority of this particular campaign. And in fact, the Soviet Union was very suspicious of Bulgarian nationalism. Uh, and Brezhnev had warned Zhivkov, uh, you know, on multiple occasions that uh, his daughter, Ludmila Zhivkova, is overstepping. So the Soviets actually didn't want to have anything to do with this. And they very reluctantly agreed to sponsor several celebrations, including, for example, that same year, the Bulgarians sent their, you know, uh, it was the Cosmos uh, program. Uh, they sent the Bulgarian, uh, you know, uh, cosmonauts in space on occasion of the anniversary. Uh, but that was sort of like the expression uh, of what was going on in the Soviet uh, uh, Union. By contrast, relations with the West were a priority. Uh, and uh, for the Bulgarians, what they decided to do is to send the best of their cultural programs in the West. They cherry-picked really the best. Uh, which created a lot of tensions within the cultural bureaucracy domestically, because at the same time you have a domestic celebration, but your best products are overseas. You know, you are emptying your own museums in order to be able to put these exhibitions together to send them, you know, to the British Museum. Uh, so there was a lot of actually debate, should we be doing this? But nevertheless, the Bulgarians wanted to send the best to the West because this is also the context of the Tals, is the context of Afghanistan, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, and uh, also sort of like the new Cold War emerging out of this conflict, right? Uh, so for the Bulgarians, it continued to be a priority to send these products to the West because they wanted to keep the details uh, ball rolling that interested them. So again, culture became a tool in a larger state project, uh, reputational, but also in this, uh, um, in this case, also political, right? To continue sort of uh, asserting the Bulgarian and the socialist bloc's desire for world peace uh, uh, and, you know, continuation of detente. So you mentioned uh, in passing about how these this legacy has been forgotten since the collapse of the Cold War. So, what is the what is the legacy today in Bulgaria of this period of cultural diplomacy? So, uh, let me uh, so sort of quantify this statement. If I said it that categorically, perhaps I should say that certain aspects of this experience have been uh, forgotten. So, Ludmila Zhivkova remains a topic of you know fascination in Bulgaria. Uh, shortly uh, after the fall of communism, a number of her close friends and collaborators 
actually published memoirs uh, and uh, even tried to portray her as sort of like the first dissident, which is, of course, absurd because she was a product of the system. Uh, and, you know, her purpose was to perpetuate that system, right? But, you know, it, she was the outlier. She was someone who was different and fresh. Uh, and, you know, my take is that, no, she was not different than fresh. She was actually the worst outcome of this system uh, in, 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 many, in many ways. Uh, but within Bulgaria, um, I mean, the, the whole issue of how you remember this period is, of course, connected to ideological divisions, how you interpret the socialist period. Is it a totalitarian regime or is it a benevolent socialist regime providing rights and benefits to its citizens? And we have this ideological division, right? But as far as the international cultural outreach, I mean, I think that nationalism is alive in Bulgaria up until now. And this whole idea that we were now once famous in the world, and, you know, we sent our gold to the world and the world admired our gold, that is very definitely something that Bulgarians today are still proud of. And in fact, some five years ago, the death for our prime minister, <laughs> Borko Borisov, to great fanfare, went to the Louvre and opened an exhibition of treasured treasures, such as those same treasures that I'm studying in this book. And he proclaimed that this exhibition has been a fulfillment of Ludmila Zhivkova's dream, to see the Bulgarian gold at the Louvre. So I think that tells you enough, right, about this, how that's viewed. Nationalism, cultural nationalism really continues to be alive and well up until today. I want to go back to the beginning of your book, the first question I asked in terms of you being a child of developed socialism. After you know writing this book and re researching and writing this book, and now you've talked about it on several occasions, do you understand yourself differently as a, as a child of, of state socialism, of developed socialism? I think uh, I now have the, the big picture. Uh, and I understand also what my parents were dealing with better, uh, which is also one of the reasons to write uh, this book. Um, and I, I want also this book to be a corrective to like rosy depictions, right? I mean, I did say that late socialism during this time period was sort of like the classic, you know, golden time of socialism. But that doesn't mean that that was necessarily, you know, years of, of uh, you know, prosperity and opportunities for people, right? So, I mean, I am now seeing how my parents have been able to navigate this system successfully to actually provide me with a happy childhood, a happy normal childhood. So from that one hand, I am seeing that this is really the normalized socialism, right? But also the socialism with all sorts of deficiencies, right? And, and I have this big picture now, and I understand this picture better. But I also want to say that I'm also aware that the, that the story I'm telling is the story of top-down policies and of elites. So as my next project, I really want to look more at bottom-up perceptions. And I really want to return, actually, the, those archives I had been telling you uh, that I mentioned earlier in the interview, this family archive that I have. My parents in Nigeria in the late 1970s sending weekly 
letters to their parents in Bulgaria for two years, and we have this archive, right? So I actually want to sit and think, what can I do with this archive? And what can this archive actually tell me differently about this experience of, you know, a small socialist state on the global scene, right, uh, in general? I want to ask about, you mentioned uh, the ethnic minorities and how they didn't fit into all of this. Can you can you speak more to what, you know, the ethnic minorities and their relationship to this cultural diplomacy and how they were utilized or not utilized or silenced? No relationship to this cultural, um, uh, uh, excuse me, diplomacy, really. Uh, 1971, so the so-called Zhivkov Constitution. And that Zhivkov constitution actually did not include provisions protecting the minorities. Uh, so, and when you have this patriotism, which is focused on the Bulgarian nation over the century, that patriotism does not include the minorities. Now, in, in the time period I'm describing, that was predominantly cultural nationalism. But it also included, for example, the beginning of the writing of various books that will become sort of building stones in the exacerbation of virulent nationalism vis-a-vis these minorities. Because once you create this very positive view of your own nation, and that your that, that nation also includes, only includes certain people, right? Then it's very easy to identify who is not in the nation. And uh, one way I actually conclude the book is in 1981, I remember that my grandmother took me to see a movie, The Glory of the Han, that is Han Asparuch, the founder of the Bulgarian state. And The Glory of the Han was about this glorious moment of the foundation of the Bulgarian state. Five years later, in 1986, school children throughout Bulgaria, following the same plates of total cultural mobilization that were established with this anniversary, were taken to see times of violence, which had to do with the, you know, portrayal in film of the Christian, uh, excuse me, of the, uh, of the Pomaks uh, and their conversion to Islam uh, as a violent process, right? So you see how basically these policies prepared the grounds, right, for the exacerbation of nationalism. I want to, and, and many scholars are pointing this out in the study of nationalism within state socialism, um, that, you know, in, in many respects, nationalism undermined the state socialist system to certain to a certain extent. Um, I'm trying to formulate a question here, and I think I just lost it. <laughs> uh what okay? What do you think about this this argument that nationalism that was born that was revitalized under state socialism as as the thing that undermine very undermined the very system that created it or 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 promoted it? Well, so in the Bulgarian case, I think that again in this period of the Dampsalik in the book, particularly late seventies, early eighties, up until the mid eighties. Perhaps actually nationalism perpetuated the socialist system because it provided a rallying point uh, for the population, right? Uh, so I would say that was the case. But also, I think that there is some validity to this claim uh, because, for example, we now have interpretations that the Bulgarian 1989 
perhaps did not begin with uh, with uh, uh, Todor Zhivkov stepping down in November of 1989, but it actually began in the spring-summer of 1989 with the great excursion of the Bulgarian Turks, where the regime actually expelled 350,000 uh, Turks from Bulgaria. And that started actually destabilizing the regime, right? Uh, and that started actually undermining uh, sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the trust uh, in the regime. So, I mean, I can see it going both ways, in other words. That was Theodora Dragostinova. She's an associate professor of history at Ohio State University. And her work focuses on nationalism, migration, global history, and Cold War culture. She's the author of Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Immigration Among the Greeks in Bulgaria, 1900 to 1949, which is published by Cornell University Press in 2011. She's also the co-editor of Beyond Mosque, Church and State, Alternative Narratives of the Nation in the Balkans, published by Central European University Press in 2016. She also was the editor of a thematic cluster in the Slavic Review in 2018 titled Beyond the Iron Curtain, Eastern Europe and the Global Cold War. And her most recent book, which you just heard a lot about, is The Cold War from the Margins, A Small Socialist State on the Global Cultural Scene, which was published this year by Cornell University Press. So you just heard this interview with uh, Theodora, and I wanted to give... Um, some takeaways, you know, this is the third interview in this series of six interviews on the Soviet world in the 1970s. And I wanted to give some impressions I have of some of the takeaways so far from the all three of these interviews, because I think they revolve around some key um, continual, some, some connected themes. So the first is, and I should say that this isn't a period of time that I'm too familiar with. I'm still learning a lot about um, particularly the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s, but the wider state socialist world. And one of the things that really strikes me, and I think this goes back to my own childhood or assumptions uh, in you know growing up at the end of the Cold War and about state socialist societies like in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet Union, and that is that this is a really connected society, um, connected not only with, say, the socialist bloc, which is not that surprising, but with the wider world outside of it. I mean, we, I was brought up to believe that, it, you know, the Soviet Union in particular was a closed society, that uh, when things got in from the West, it was, it was all like underground and there are none of these, the, the, the state socialist systems really isolated itself from the outside world. And what I'm finding from all three of these interviews is this isn't the case at all. Um, both the Soviet Union and other state socialist regimes in Eastern Europe were very much connected in what we now call globalization in the 1970s. And we see these ties not just across the Iron Curtain, but also with Asia, Africa, the Middle East, South America, in all sorts of ways that I certainly didn't anticipate. The other thing, and this really comes from that, is that these are really dynamic societies. Um, you know, despite all of the constraints of the system, both ideologically and economically, 
there really were some interesting possibilities that were opened up through these international connections. Um, it not only exposed both Soviet citizens and, and citizens of, of in Eastern Europe to different cultures, different peoples, different ways of life outside of the state socialist systems. It also really influenced life in those societies and made them a subject to a lot of interesting changes that we see in many parts of the world at this time. So the socialist bloc is not an isolated um, you know, entity in, in the emerging, emerging globalization. That said, the globalization we see isn't exactly the one we're most familiar with in terms of, say, capitalist globalization. Um, what you see is really some kind of articulation of an alternative global imaginings, relationships perhaps on a non-capitalist uh, playing field, types of relations. I mean, I don't want to overstress this, you know, despite all the contradictions, uh, because these are still authoritarian, top-down regimes. But you you do see some interesting cultural, scientific, and social developments that suggest a different type of world. Um, and here, what really strikes me is, for example, in Claire Ibarra's interview about Cuban-Soviet scientific exchanges, it's just a different way of, of seeing science and what its goals are. The other thing that's really striking, however, is the issue of nationalism. Um, this really comes out clear in the interview with Theodora about Bulgaria and its cultural diplomacy, how strong nationalism or Bulgarian nationalism was to this project, and how this really resulted in the marginal, you know, marginalizing or even silencing of ethnic minorities within Bulgaria. And here's the other thing that we see developing in state socialism is this kind of nationalism. We have Russian nationalism in the Soviet Union. You have nationalism along its um, various satellite states, but also within the Soviet Union itself in terms of its uh, republics. And as Theodora puts quite emphatically and correctly, you know, nationalism brings people together despite political differences. And I think this is one of the most vexing things of this ideology of nationalism. Why does it seem to have much more currency than issues of class, for example? Um, and, you know, I think there is something to the idea that, or something to the irony, I should say, that um, this nationalism really gets a lot of life in many respects within a state socialist system and was really promoted in many respects by state socialism. Uh, and I think there's a really strong argument to make about how in the end it might have undermined or the question of whether it undermined a state socialist system that was more internationalist. So I'll leave it at that for right now. Um, I'm really curious to, to know what you all think. If you have any thoughts, please feel free to drop me a line on Facebook Twitter or on the srbpodcast.org contact page. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you, if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media, tell your friends to listen, your family, write a review on iTunes and other uh, podcast platforms. That really helps out a lot. And always feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or the podcast website to let us know what you think. 
And as always, if you'd like to support the SRB podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its various programming is a nonprofit educational in- endeavor. Please help us keep it that way by becoming a patron so we don't have to have any advertisements. We want to keep it free to listeners without any paywalls. That's really part of the SRB podcast mission. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a monthly patron by joining the table of ranks. And until next time, bye. Yeah.